Our lesson for this Pentecost Sunday comes from Acts chapter 2. Once again, pay close attention. This is God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look! Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my manservants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we do pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word today, just as you filled your servants on that day with your spirit so they might speak profound and clear truths. So, Father, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit today and also everyone in this room that we might receive your words and that you might, through us, continue to regenerate and change and transform the world through your creative spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One day this past week, my son asked if we could go get uh, snow cones, and the answer to that question in my house is always yes. There's never a no to uh, asking to go get snow cones, so we went, and as we sat there with the windows rolled down, I had the uh, music on in the car listening to an album that I really loved and listened to a lot in my teens, and then I saw this boy next to me who's now... 12, he's about to be 13, and I remembered I was just about his age when I bought my first album. And so I said to my son, you know, it's funny, I'm listening to this music now that I listened to when I was just a little bit older than you, and I'm still listening to it. The music that you enjoy now, and the music that you buy and, and pay attention to over the next five years, is going to be the music that you listen to for the rest of your life. You may add things to it, you may discover new things into your 20s and 30s, but really this next little, little piece of your life, the things that you enjoy now are going to be special to you for the rest of your life. So that means it's important to listen to good things 
follow me, my son, and let me show you, let me guide you. The power of nostalgia is incredible though, isn't it? You hear a song from a special time in your life and it grips you and it pulls you back in. Such is the power of nostalgia. It's also funny how nostalgia paints everything a little bit blurry when it comes to the bad parts and a little bit shiny when it comes to the good parts. Nostalgia is so influential that marketers and influencers and politicians can't help but use nostalgia all the time. They're constantly repackaging our childhoods and selling them back to us, associating what they're selling and associating themselves with the good feelings that we had when we were younger. And it's because nostalgia is so powerful, we need to be aware of all the ways that it can be used for ill. Sweet, glossed over images of a yesterday that were not that great to begin with or that never really happened can stagnify us and stultify us and keep us longing for some past thing rather than pressing forward into maturity and glory. So I'm, I'm not disparaging old songs. I love old songs, old movies. I'm not disparaging genuinely good memories, but rather to remind us that old good things are best preserved and best honored when we bring them into to new worlds, the new opportunities that God is creating in the future. That's how we move from glory to glory, to, to maturity. But these old things can become idols and boat anchors when we hold on to them in such a way that we try to recreate the past around them and refuse to press forward. There's a name for that. There's a name for being stuck in the past and refusing to move forward with the maturity that the Spirit is guiding humanity to. And that word is paganism. Paganism only has a past. Paganism doesn't have a future. Paganism has no hopeful eschatology. There is no future. There is no goal to history. It's just the circle of life, just one thing after another, just cycling back over and over. And so paganism can only pull humanity back into ancient idolatry, back into ignorance and tribalism and ancestor worship, and can only take us backward not forward. But the story of the Bible sets a different trajectory. The story of the Bible sets a trajectory of a history toward, aiming toward a glorious future. And God is always calling his people to get up, leave where you are, and go start new things. Go create new worlds. From the very beginning, God says, a man shall leave his father and mother, and go cleave to his wife. That, the, the formation of a family is a leaving and a going out to something new. Leave mom and dad. Go start something new. Leave home. You don't want four generations living under one tent with a patriarch or a matriarch over everybody. Come, get out, go. And so God says the same thing when he calls Abraham. Come, come out, Abraham. Leave your father and leave your father's idols. God's Holy Spirit is always pushing his people out into new realities and into new situations. We read last week from Acts chapter 1 that when Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit on you and you'll have the power to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. You got to keep moving. You can't stay in Jerusalem. Push and keep going and keep going out. We don't hang on to the past that we have been delivered from. We don't look back longingly to Sodom or to Egypt, or for that matter, we don't even look longingly back to the Garden of Eden because each time God rescues his people from their sin and from their messes, he delivers them into a new world with new possibilities and blocks 
the pathway back. You can't go back to Egypt, you'll die. You can't go back to Sodom, it's not there anymore. You can't go back to the Garden of Eden, there are angels standing there with flaming swords. You can't get back in. So when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the Lord doesn't hit reboot and say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a new garden and we're going to have new trees and we're going to try this over again and we're going to keep trying it until you get it right. That's not what he does. In his mercy, he says, okay, we're going to move out of the garden into a land where you are to be fruitful and multiply and where we're going to uh, have new responsibilities and a new, a new way of, of dealing with the earth and with each other. So and, and this is what the Lord is always doing after the flood, after God judges the world with the flood. He brings Noah into a new covenant with new responsibilities and new authority. And he does it with Abraham and Moses and Joshua and all the judges and Samuel all the way up to the time of the kings. Each time the covenant is renewed, everything is escalated. Everything is intensified in glory, intensified in expectation and responsibility. You never get to go backward and stay there. You can't go backward. It's impossible. You keep what you learned back there and you grow. And the, and the trajectory is cumulative maturity through all of these stages of, of human experience and, and all these things that God is bringing us through. And in each major point where God moves humanity forward, he establishes a new sanctuary. He establishes a new point of connection for fellowship and covenant renewal for his people, a new connection between heaven and earth. And certain things always happen whenever he establishes a new sanctuary. Certain things happen to show his pleasure and his presence in that new sanctuary. There's always some combination of wind and fire and smoke. When he sets up his garden sanctuary in Eden, his spirit blew into the nostrils of Adam. There was the filling and the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who hovered over the waters of creation now fills man, now lives in man. And then in the Garden of Eden, God lit his fire on the altar in the form of two people, a man and a woman. In the Hebrew, it's ish and isha, which is very similar to the word for flame or fire. He is flambeau and she is flamette. And they together are the fire that God lights on the altar of, of Eden. This is the garden. This is the sanctuary where he would meet with and commune with his people. Later on, he calls Abraham, come, come get away from your father's idols. Come act out the conquest of Canaan. Go around and establish little sanctuaries, altars, each a little oasis of worship to the God of creation. And Abraham spreads the sacrificial pieces of animals before the Lord, the pieces of the sacrificial animals before the Lord, and God's torch, his flame, his light passes among them, accompanied by the smoking heat of an oven. And so God blessed and consecrated Abraham's altar. God sets up a sanctuary and God blesses it with smoke and fire and heat and wind. It happens again at the dedication of the ta tabernacle. The glory, of, uh, the glory cloud of Yahweh appears to all the people. Fire comes out from it and consumes the sacrifice on the altar. The Spirit filled the 70 elders at the altar and they all prophesied. Much later, when it comes time to dedicate Solomon's temple, God's glory cloud comes again, fills the place in such a way that the priests can't even perform their duties within the temple. There's fire on the altar that day of over 100,000 sacrifices. What do we see? Every time there's a new sanctuary, there's wind, spirit, fire, smoke, moving us forward through stages of maturity. So now in Acts 2, 
after the ascension of Jesus, when it comes time to dedicate a new temple, to consecrate a new altar, the new sanctuary, to designate the new point of contact between heaven and earth, what do we see? Well, you can't go back to the temple. That way is blocked. You can't go back there. Every stone is coming down from that temple, and it's about to be over. So what do we see in the new temple? The church. God's Holy Spirit shows up again as a rushing mighty wind. It fills the whole house where the apostles were staying. And just as the old tabernacle and the old temple were uh, unable to contain God's glory cloud, neither could the apostles. They couldn't contain it either. It starts spilling out as they spill out into the street and preach the good news in all the languages of all the people gathered there. And then God lights his new altar with a new fire as flames of fire sit on their heads. They are the new angelic swordsmen now admitting people to communion with God. Not blocking the way, but admitting people into uh, uh, communion and life with the Spirit and the Son and the Father. So just as God did every time throughout history, now he establishes his sanctuary. Now he says of the church, here is where you're going to meet me. Here is where you're going to offer worship acceptable to me. Here is where we will renew covenant together. If you want fellowship with the Father, you're only going to find it in the church, in the community of the Spirit, in the new temple. So we're not reaching backward. We aren't rewinding to the garden or to Abraham's altars or to the tabernacle. God shows us that I'm doing this new thing here, and this isn't a contingency. This isn't plan B. I love the thing that I'm doing. This is what is best. So these events are what we celebrate every year on the day of Pentecost. This glorification, this filling of the church, this endorsement of the new temple. As we mark this day on the church calendar, we, we focus on the work and the person of God's Holy Spirit. We reflect on not only what he, what he did on that day, but how he continually abides in us and through the church moving forward. So I want to focus very briefly on just three dimensions of the Spirit's work through the church. And we'll move through these quickly, I promise. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit defines and shapes reality. And the Holy Spirit of God alone gives unity. These three things. Another way to put it is the Spirit makes all things alive. He makes all things real. He makes all things one. God's Holy Spirit, first of all, is the one who makes all things alive. The resurrected Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to give life. And on this day, Peter preaches salvation, life that is in Christ. And he says in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that there is only one way to have deliverance. There's only one way to have salvation. There's only one way to experience true life as men and women. Repeatedly, the scriptures testify that it is God's spirit. It's the, it's the breath, the wind of God who gives, who gives breath to the living. Listen to Isaiah 42. Yahweh is he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it, who gives breath who gives life to all living things? Well, it's God's Holy Spirit. And 
Both Hebrew and Greek, the words spirit and breath are the same word. It is the spirit of God, the breath of God, that breathed into Adam and made him a living soul. That breath is our life. And this spirit who gave life to man gives life to all living creatures. The spirit, Isaiah says, breathes upon the earth and things move and grow and bud and flower and reproduce. Animals are animated and guided by God's Holy Spirit. That's what we read in Psalm 104 this morning, right? That Psalm of creation. Uh, These are all, these all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open their hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. If there is life on this planet, it's because God, God's Holy Spirit has put it there and he directs it and he directs all life. I I imagine that the Holy Spirit is the one speaking to animals that tell them, you know, the birds to leave the north and fly south. It's God's Holy Spirit that says to the caterpillar, okay, it's time to make a cocoon. It's time to wrap up in there. And then he breathes and his whisper says to the to the animal inside the cocoon. Okay, it's time to spread your wings and become a butterfly. It's the Holy Spirit who's superintending every moment of every breath, of every heartbeat, of all living things. Everything that has life has life because God's Spirit put it there. And then Psalm 104 also says, if he withdraws his life-giving work and his care, we die. We cannot exist without God's Holy Spirit hovering over and maintaining life on earth. It is the spirit who gives you life. He uses means. He uses food, and he uses medicine, and he uses water, and he uses oxygen. He uses means, but ultimately and primarily, our lives are in his hands. And if he withdraws his blessing, there is no life. There's nothing left. All life comes from God's Holy Spirit. And this life that he gives to his people, the Bible also describes as power. The prophet Micah says, I truly am full of power by the spirit of Yahweh. The spirit is the source of energy, strength, movement. And those he moves on in a special favorable way are strong and they're powerful. Here's Isaiah 31. Now the Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Whenever the Bible makes a distinction between flesh and and spirit. Always remember this, the, the distinction that's being made there is not a distinction between material and, and immaterial, but the distinction being made there is between weakness and power. When you read flesh, think weakness. When you read spirit, think strength. Which brings us to the next proposition. First, the spirit makes all things alive. Secondly, the spirit makes all things real. One one way we tend to think of the work of the Spirit or the realm of the Spirit in general is to use the word spiritual as a synonym for unseen or non-corporeal. In other words, spiritual things are things you can't touch, you can't see, you can't confirm. Spiritual things are just sort of inside of you or they're just in the air. And when we read that our warfare is spiritual or that this thing is a work of the Spirit, what we're saying is that it has nothing to do with the concrete realities or absolutes of life. And and then when we we carry that out and we say that the church's activity in the world is spiritual or that Jesus has a spiritual victory over his enemies, then what we're saying is that the, the effects of the conquest of Jesus over the whole earth, 
The, the effects are, are intangible. The, the, the effects are abstract. There are no objective results or effects of these things. We just have to trust that they're true. You can't see them. They have no impact on creation. We think in terms of, uh, we, we think of spiritual in these terms. We think spiritual things and the work of the spirit are the opposite of concrete, real, incarnational, objective works. It's all kind of, when, whenever we talk about the spirit, it's all kind of uh, subjective, emotional, intellectual, but not real in any sense. And so I've heard Christians speak of spiritual worship or worshiping in the spirit that has nothing to do with prayers and hymns and sermons and sacraments. But, but spiritual worship just kind of happens inside and that makes it more genuine and that makes it more spontaneous and that makes it more sincere than all this physical embodied activity. Because we maintain, whether we think about it or not, we maintain this unbiblical dichotomy between spirit and reality as if the spirit has no impact on reality, on the created order. But that's not how the Bible ever speaks about the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is always engaged on the created order. We first see the Spirit at work. Where, where do we see God's Holy Spirit first? In the work of creation on Genesis 1. And when the Spirit comes on mighty men of God and he moves them, they do things in the real world. God's Holy Spirit fills Samson. He doesn't intellectually slay the Philistines. He really caves in their real noggins. He caves in their real heads with a real jawbone. When the Spirit fills the artists who craft and build the tabernacle, they're engaged in physical, artistic expression and work. The same Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation the spirit who blew back the waters of the flood, bringing forth a new creation through the waters. He continues this creative work to remake creation so that it becomes all that it was meant to be. Our world is warped and it's hardened and it's blurred and it's defaced by sin. It is the spirit who works in the world through his church to enhance it, to give it relevance, to give it meaning again and to make it fruitful. Christian faith is an incarnate faith, not merely an emotional or intellectual faith. You see, a religion, this is so critical, this is so important for us to get, a religion that is purely mental, a religion that is purely emotional, inward, personal, experiential, doesn't threaten anybody or anything. That kind of religion doesn't bother Satan at all. A physically disconnected Gnostic religion is no problem for the devil. He knows how to handle that. He created it. He knows how to handle that. World governments and oppressors don't care what, they, what, what you think in the privacy of your own mind. They don't care what you feel in your heart so long as you do what they tell you to do and so long as you say what they want you to say. Socially woke, politically correct corporations don't send you to sensitivity training and diversity training for what's hiding in the recesses of your soul. As long as you keep your religion under your hat and between your ears, think whatever you want to think, that doesn't bother anybody and that doesn't do anything. You like your heart religion? You can keep your heart religion. It's fine. What gets you in trouble is when you join the Holy Spirit in his work on the realm of creation. That's what begins to cause and create conflict. I've said this before, but I love this. Um, every single time someone is filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and you can check me on this because I've done it and I've studied it and I've studied it. Every single time somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, they speak. 
They sing, they preach, they proclaim. Something is being said. Something is being worked out of their heart, out of their soul, out of their mind, into creation, into the world. Every single time someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak. And that's because the Spirit is the one who is at work reforming and regenerating and cleansing and shaping all of life under God's holy word, moving us from rebellion and idolatry to worship and obey Jesus. And when you join that work, you are joining in reality. The Holy Spirit makes all things real, moving into reality. And and that's very threatening to people who don't live in reality. Only those who are filled with the Spirit and who walk in the Spirit are living in reality. If you deny that God, by His Holy Spirit, created the world in the space of six days, if you deny that, you aren't living in reality. If you deny that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, you're living in a fantasy world. If you reject the truth that only the Spirit has the power to regenerate man, give him life, redeem him, and wash him from his sin, if you deny that, you're delusional. You're living under a lie. That must be our starting point when we deal with the world of unbelief, when we interface with unbelievers. We do it humbly. We do it compassionately. We speak the truth in love. But our starting point is that unbelieving professor that coworker, that family member, that media person, that leader, that actor, that musician, they aren't living in the same world that you're living in. They act and think the way they do because they're wearing a blindfold. Their senses are dulled, and it's only by submitting to the call of God's Holy Spirit that that's ever going to change for them. Otherwise, they continue in darkness and strife and hatred, hatred of self, hatred of others. And they want you to think that it's all about you. You are the hateful one. But it's because they're disconnected and up is down and left is right and inside out and all, all of it's backwards. It's because a part from the Holy Spirit living and working in your life through God's holy word under the leadership of King Jesus, apart from all that, you're living in a fantasy world. You're living a lie and you're living a delusion. This brings me to the last one. The Holy Spirit makes all things one. When the Spirit comes on this day, there are people from all over the world in Jerusalem there to celebrate the feast. They're all from different backgrounds and tongues and families, and the Holy Spirit creates out of these people one new family. This is the redemption of Babel, the escalation, the improvement, the glorification of Babel. Now we're not just scattered and hateful, but now we have all of these tongues and all of these customs and all of these Uh, uh, forms of music and food and all of these cultures and now they're brought back into the church and redeemed and, and brought together under the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit alone is the unifier. He is the glue that holds humanity together. Without the work of the Spirit in us, apart from God's Holy Spirit, we are good at a few things. We are good at being splintered and divisive and schismatic. We're always pulling apart, off to ourselves, divorcing ourselves from others removing ourselves, creating our own hell all by ourselves. Sin is always successful at fracturing and separation and disintegration, and it always ignites the fires of tribalism. Only the Holy Spirit binds what is separated by sin. Only the Holy Spirit can heal what is broken. He fuses together that which has been splintered. And so if you have disunity in your marriage, 
If you have disunity in your home with your children, it's because somebody is not submitted 100% to the Holy Spirit. How many times have I sat across the table from a husband and wife who aren't getting along and I say, sir, if you will submit 100% to God's Holy Spirit, ma'am, if you will, if you will submit 100% to God's Holy Spirit, if you will both agree 100% that you will do whatever God says to do, you'll have peace. You'll have unity. You'll have happiness in your home. That's the only way. That's the only way. If both of you submit. You see, the lack of submission to the Holy Spirit is what brings conflict and grief and sorrow. And so on the day of Pentecost, he, the, the Holy Spirit takes all of these scattered peoples and he makes them one. And look at the unity they have at the end of chapter 2. This vision of a church where everything's clicking and everything's working the way it ought uh, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is after Peter preached. This is after the 3,000 baptisms. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Their unity there is not racial. Their unity is not national, it's not political, it's not philosophical. This community has been drawn together by God's Holy Spirit and therefore the church can do what no other organization or nation or society has ever done and that is to have real abiding unity. Another description of that unity and that community comes in Ephesians 4. Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, having, uh, being diligent to pursue, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. This Holy Spirit is the spirit of unity and brotherhood, of oneness and union and communion. There is no unity. There is no lasting brotherhood of man apart from God's Holy Spirit. We are always working to force unity and to force people around anything other than God's Holy Spirit and the gospel. We're always trying to force unity and force people together. This is why conspiracies and, 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 and plots are, are short-lived and they always collapse. Sin will always bring down every conspiracy and every tower of Babel that you build. It's only the Spirit who unites us to Jesus. He brings us into fellowship with the Father. He brings us into fellowship with each other. And where you resist the fellowship of the saints, you resist the Spirit, and you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Because we as a people, because we as a generation refuse to submit to God's Holy Spirit, we have anger, and we have bloodshed, and we have violence, and we have racism, even to the point that the, the innuendo, the rumor, the suspicion of tribalism and the, and the suspicion of racism is enough to spark mayhem and destruction. We are being manipulated into hating each other 
And so now is not the time for the church to play with the manipulation, to play along with it, to be part of it. Rather, it's time for the church to continue to preach loud enough so that everyone hears it. There is zero possibility for unity among man apart from the unity of the Holy Spirit. Anything that we ever try to rally around, anything that we find as a point of agreement that is not the gospel is doomed to failure. We're, we're establishing false bonds that will always break. They will always collapse. There is no hope. There is no unity apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit. And it's within the body of Christ where the spirit of unity must be intensified around the gospel, around the cross, around the faith once delivered to the saints. If you want to know who God is, you have to know him by your son who is revealed by the power of his Holy Spirit. And this spirit is the only source of life. He's the only access to reality. He is the only source of human unity and brotherhood and fellowship. You either have the Holy Spirit or you are locked in a death spiral into the past, into paganism, into darkness. You're going backwards, not forwards. God has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can be the first fruits of a new creation, the agents of his work in the world. Through us, he brings life to the world and truth and recreation and unity. This all happens through us because it's happened to us. We have been regenerated. We have been brought from death to life. And now we are agents of that same transformative power in the world. The Holy Spirit is the fire and the mighty wind that searches and burns and sweeps out the sin of our lives. He's the dove that hovers over us and broods over us, bringing us from disorder to order. This Holy Spirit is present and active now in the church and in the world. So you must submit to him. You must listen to the conviction that is calling you to confess your sins. You must listen to his word, which guides you into truth. You must be filled with the spirit in order to have life. There is nothing else and no one else who can give you life apart from him. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for sending your spirit upon the church, for confirming her as the new sanctuary as the new point of contact between heaven and earth. So fill your church with your Holy Spirit that we might live out these truths Monday through Saturday in expectation of coming back and hearing from you again and hearing your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.